When I grow up, I want to work for a woke company. Like super woke. When I grow up, when I grow up, I want to be hired based on what I look like rather than my skills. I want to be judged by my political beliefs. I want to get promoted based on my chromosomes. When I grow up, I want to be offended by my coworkers and walk around the office on eggshells and have my words policed by HR. Words like grandfather, peanut gallery, long time no see, no can do. When I grow up, I want to be obsessed with emotional safety and do workplace sensitivity training all day long. When I grow up, I want to climb the corporate ladder just by following the crowd. I want to be a conformist. I want to weaponize my pronouns. What are pronouns? It's time to grow up and get back to work. Introducing the number one woke-free job board in America, redballoon.work. Michael Thiessen here, and you are listening to Open Mic with me, Michael Thiessen. This show is produced by Liberty Coalition Canada in partnership with ChristianWeek.org. Liberty Coalition Canada exists to establish Christ's justice and righteousness and to defend those who stand in Canada. Uh, ChristianWeek.org exists to provide a practical, balanced, hope-filled perspective on national and global issues. So folks, if you want to support our podcasting work, head over to libertycoalitioncanada.com backslash donate and click the analysis box. Donations submitted there go directly to christianweek.org in order to support our efforts to talk about these things that are important to Canadian and North American Christians. Uh, If you want to support our legal work, our advocacy work, which happens exclusively in Canada, head over to libertycoalitioncanada.com backslash donate and click other designations, and that will support our legal cases. We're really happy for anybody who will support some of our very important cases that we are continuing to process this year. With uh, 40-year highs, Uh, of inflation and economic stagflation on the horizon, I want to again remind you and introduce you to our uh, partner, Rocklink Investment uh, Firm. And we're really excited to introduce you to Rocklink. Rocklink is an independent investment management firm focused on solely creating portfolios of high quality businesses anchored to the time-tested principles of value investing. So head over to rocklink.com. Info at rocklink.com is where you would email them, and that is link with a C, or you would go to www.rocklink.com. And as I've been announcing for the last two weeks, puppies are for sale. So this is me just shamelessly trying to sell a litter of my very own beautiful golden doodles uh, folks, I'm encouraging everybody. Deanna just committed off camera. Uh, today we have Deanna McLeod uh, coming on to talk about more research. And she just committed to coming up and visiting the Ark uh, on her way home to Canada and to pick up a, a, a puppy. And so we want you to have that opportunity as well. So um, head on down to Kentucky, come and visit Sarah and I. And we would love to sell you one of our nine beautiful golden doodles. Uh, they're ready in two weeks. And so we if you're interested, just go to information at Liberty Coalition Canada and say, Mike is shamelessly selling his puppies and I want one. Okay, so Deanna, all of the administration out of the way, the the the, the personal use of my uh, ministry platform uh, out of the way, they are gorgeous puppies, by the way. Uh, I hope I hope Matthew puts up some of those photos. But today, you and I are continuing to talk about this important research that uh, you have continued to offer Canadians. And today, we are talking about OHIP information. So why don't you explain to us why this is so important and why you're excited to bring it to our listeners as a researcher? I definitely want to check out your doodles, by the way. And I, I really appreciate that segue towards fertility and reproductive capacity by talking about your puppies. That's like amazing. <laughs> uh, it, it wasn't even planned. Interestingly enough, I went on Twitter and I am tra- shamelessly trying to sell the puppies. And I said, by the way, the picture 
there is a is a puppy uh not a whale or a rat it's a puppy and so i was using the puppies in that situation to talk about how we identify as males and females but yeah of course uh fertility is the what we're talking about we're talking about uh wanting to protect life and yeah it has been exciting to see all of these young animals be birthed and our kids loving them and taking care of them so yeah it is a good segue yeah, and I'm in my car right now, so maybe we'll just like turn around and head your way, right? I love golden doodles. Those are awesome. We have an Aussie doodle at home, and so maybe he needs a friend. I don't know. Um, but anyways, yeah, I'm. we were talking about being excited about getting this data, and you were trying to tell me that that's probably not something I should say on camera because, you know, getting excited about, you know, safety signals is probably not a good way of saying it. But um, as a researcher, I am actually really excited about this data. And we were just chatting a moment ago about how um, with these vaccines, what they do is they declare safety. So they do minimal testing, you know, seven days of active testing. We've already got, talked about that before, uh, you know, and then they dismantle the clinical trial, at least the control arm that allows you to determine mid to long term safety. And they just go along just talking about it, how safe it is. And, you know, one of the problems is if you don't test something, well, actually, it's not a problem. It's a problem for us, the consumer, but not a problem for the manufacturer, because if they don't test, they don't find. Uh, and so what I'm really excited about is that we actually have a very robust data set now that we can look at, we can query uh, and see if we were right all along. And so this is really interesting because it reflects uh, the number of times people have gone to visit their doctors and the doctors have actually billed OHIP for that visit. So if the visits go up or down, we can infer that something is amiss. We can't prove that it's amiss. We don't know the final diagnosis, but we can definitely say that there's a change in pattern, which would indicate some sort of concern. So with that, maybe I'll just jump into my, my slide sets. All right. Let me know if you can see it, Mike. Absolutely. I can see it. And again, I've thanked you many times for these. I know that our listeners who who follow along have, have really benefited from all of the work that you, you so, uh, so you present so well in image just, just as we get in there, I know that I leaded you with excited, uh, while, while, while it really did hit me as we were talking about it going, should we, should we be thinking in that framework? But as we now are presenting this, this you're, you're right. It's a good thing that we're able to show people what's been going on. So go for it and get right in there. Yeah. So because we're going to be looking at OHIP billing data, we're only going to be looking at one metric, which is the number of visits or the number of times that people have gone in to visit their doctor. Um, I'll talk about a little bit more about what data we're capturing versus what data we're not capturing. So it's not like every single visitor, every single time that somebody might have gone to visit the doctor where there could be a concern. But it is it is a very good capture. And, and OHIP is great, too, because Ontario... I'm just going to, I may get this wrong, is it, it's it's between 10 and 15 million people. It's a lot, it's a very large sample size. And so, you know, anytime that somebody goes to see the doctor, it's captured here uh, because somebody has to pay for that visit. And so that's what we're looking at. So we're kind of taking a, a backdoor look at things. Uh, it's not confirmed diagnosis, but it's um, definitely visits over time. Um, and one of the things that we'll want to be mindful of when we're looking at these visits or these these billing codes over time is we'll want to be considering when in Ontario people were getting their vaccines because we'll be able to look for spikes at the time when there was a higher or lower vaccine uptake. So if you're looking at this slide here, this is the uptake for the first dose. So remember there was a big push for the first dose and we hit about 50% uptake, um, you know, in June 2021. And then shortly after that, we've got about 50% of the people getting their second shot by about July. So it was a really big push. And then if you look towards the end of the year, which is about here, you've got about 80% of eligible people. And I say eligible because I don't think it was available to children at the time, like not the very young children, the, the tweens and the, the babies. Um, uh, by the end of December, and then if you look here, by early, like about March 
2022, about 50% of people actually received, of eligible people received their third shot. So we've got a high concentration of vaccine exposure towards the end 2021 and early 2022. So when we're looking at our OHIP billing data, we're going to be mindful or be looking for any changes in historical patterns versus um, changes within that time frame of late, you know, late 2021 to 2022. So one of the reasons why we're looking um, at female uh, fertility and changes is because if you look at this post-marketing study, which was produced by Pfizer, and again, a post-marketing study is where they're, um, they're basically receiving reports where people feel that they've been injured. You know, they get their vaccine and the person in their mind says, okay, I think that this is associated with the vaccine that I just received. So they did this monitoring three months into the vaccine rollout. Uh, in January 2021. And this is the report that was produced uh, reflecting those first three months. And one of the interesting uh, characteristics right out of the gate was that 71% of the injuries that were reported were in women. Um, and it's possible that that's a reporting bias in the sense that people, women might be more inclined to report, um, you know, a vaccine injury than men. Uh, so that could be part of it, or it could be that there is more injury happening to women for some reason, and it might be worth looking into a little bit more closely. The other thing that's really interesting is that 12% of the people or the injuries are occurring in people who are prime childbearing age, according to this report. So people who are younger than 30 years old. Uh, I couldn't actually get you know, there's probably some people in childbearing age up here in, in this quarter, this uh, cohort as well. But uh, we know that at least 12% of them were in, in childbearing ages. And we also know that about a third of them didn't actually recover fully within the time period that was being monitored uh, from their injuries. So we know that these are fairly long lasting injuries. And we know that 3% of the reported injuries proved fatal. So all of these things make me think you know, make us think that it's probably worth taking a closer look at uh, female-related issues. And um, we've already talked about in our previous podcasts um, about, you know, the, the randomized controlled trial that was done in pregnancy. We've talked about uh, some of the concerning reports and miscarriages from VAERS and some of the pharmacovigilance. But now we're just going to go a little bit more broad, uh, broadly. We'll look a little bit more broadly. And instead of just looking at specifically pregnancy um, and breastfeeding, we're going to go and look at, is there an impact or has there been an impact on fertility? So one of the things that's really important to note is the types of monitoring that you can do for safety. There's active safety surveillance, which is this chart, which is what they did here in the randomized controlled trial. And in the randomized controlled trial, when they were very closely looking, even if they didn't do it perfectly, um, or there's some criticism there, they still found that 78% of the people who received the vaccine reported some sort of adverse effect. Um, a lot of that was were COVID-like symptoms. Um, and 5% of them, <clears throat> those adverse effects were actually severe, um, meaning that they were unable to carry out their daily activities. Um, and they went on for at least six months. So whenever Canada is monitoring the vaccine safety, this is Health Canada's public access. So they talk about their top rated surveillance system for monitoring vaccine injury. Um, and this is basically the data that we pulled from that system in 2021. Well, the randomized controlled trial reported that 78% of people were having adverse effects and 5% of them were severe. Health Canada reported that only 0.07% of Canadians were actually having adverse effects. And from that, they actually conclude that the vaccine is safe. The problem isn't necessarily that the adverse events disappeared. It's that the monitoring system is not sensitive enough to be able to capture uh, the actual adverse events. And thus, when we what we did was we said, well, well let's look at, at OHIP billing codes um, because OHIP billing doesn't lie. We know that if people get sick, they go to the doctor. And so what we did at the CCCA was we, we 
did a FOIA request <clears throat> and re requested data from January 2015 to December 2022. So we would get a full set of data. And if I just, whoops, go back there. Um, so what this data includes is anybody who goes to see a primary care physician and is then referred out to a specialist working in the community or a specialist working in the hospital, all of those specialists would basically bill OHIP for that visit. And the data that we're going to be looking at is basically the first time somebody goes to see a doctor, it could be the primary care physician or a specialist for a specific diagnostic code, meaning, you know, the diagnostic code means for whatever illness that they have. What this database doesn't include necessarily are ICD-10 codes um, or if a doctor is salaried in a hospital. So for instance, if they're, you know, they have a salary in a hospital, then they're not going to be billing OHIP. And so anything related to that might be missed. And if they're in hospital, you know, if they direct, go directly to the emergency department and they're in hospital and they get treated, those treatment codes would not be captured. So what may not be captured ideally in this system would be somebody who's experiencing a miscarriage and would have to go to the emergency. Um, or if a baby is in the NICU um, and is needing treatment or, or something along those lines, those codes, you know, th that billing code, I mean, they wouldn't bill for that. And so therefore that illness would be missed in the data that we're looking at. So can you go to but the that slide said, just that you were at, Deanna, can you go to the previous slide just for a second? One? Nope, the one before that. This one here? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, just to be very clear, in, in that area where you say the signal is lost in 2021, th this is the passive surveillance that we would call uh, the, that, that the Canadian adverse reaction database is that that's what you're referring to the the that if that if someone went in and reported vaccine injury specifically or something just when you say the signal is lost and you say the system wasn't sensitive enough um are we are i know we've gone over this before but i just want to go over it for good measure we're just saying that those adverse events were not reported up the stream effectively enough and now we are not looking at like a specific reporting system that may be insufficient. Now we are just looking at patient comes in, talks to doctor, doctor turns around, says to secretary, this is what this was about. Uh, 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 doctor's secretary or clerk submits the invoice to OHIP. So, so we're, we're, we're looking at a totally different data set and not one that is based upon somebody knowingly reporting an adverse reaction to a, to a specific mm -hmm. system that you and I have both talked about being, uh, oh, there's a, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of water going against the current to, to, to get a good reporting on the adverse reaction database. I just want you to clarify that as we, as we move forward. Am I right in understanding you? Yeah. I think you're absolutely right in the sense of passive surveillance is basically, you know, you tell somebody that the vaccine is safe, for instance, or a product is safe and you send them on their way. Uh, and then the person has something happen the next day. And, you know, because they in their mind think that it's safe, they're not going to attribute this new issue to to that particular uh, treatment or vaccine receipt. Right. Uh, and even if they did say, oh, wow, that's kind of curious. I think it is related, you know, in their mind, they'll always be questioning it. And then they'll basically say, well, I wonder how I would be able to report that. Nobody's told me that there's a need to report it, or I don't even know how I would report it, you know, and so then there's that. And then do I have the time to report it? And do I have the capacity to report it? And there's so many barriers to reporting an adverse event. And then, of course, we've talked about in the Canadian system, uh, there's, you know, a bias that's inbred in doctors where they're not allowed to go against the narrative or fear discipline. Uh, and some people have been disciplined for writing exemptions, vaccine exemption letters. So the chance that somebody, you know, can go to their doctor and have their doctor help them, uh, you know, is questionable. And then we've heard reports, um, again, 
just secondhand reports, at least from me, where, you know, unless it, it checks off one of the CEPI adverse events lists that are officially on the books, um, you know, the, the vaccine injury could be tossed out. So there's some level of screening that's occurring after the physician you know, who might be disciplined for reporting your adverse event is, is submitted. So there's all sorts of reasons why, um, you know, this, this surveillance system is not picking up adverse events that could explain, you know, that the adverse events are happening, but they're just not being reported in this particular database. And I don't uh, want to spend surveillance systems. I, yeah. I don't want to spend too much time on this one, but I just want to point out to people. So the, the adverse reaction uh, the ad, the adverse event database is something that I would think would be very, you know, you have to go through all of that to make the report. And then everybody who knows that they're contributing to this is re- contributing to a very specific report. What, what we're going to look at right now is just the day-to-day stuff that doctors go and do to try to get paid. And they're just going to bill what's happened. And they're not going to be so aware of how this might be political or how this might be linked to, you know, the sale or, or the, the lack of sale of the vaccine, they're just trying to get paid. So now they're going to be honest. And, and, and so as you said, OHIP doesn't lie. So I will, I will leave it with that. I just wanted to clarify that uh, again for our listeners as to uh, that's kind of like an official reporting system that we we've been concerned about throughout the whole time. Now, this is just Everybody doing their administration, no one thinking that anyone's going to look at what they've done, and uh, we're 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 going to just get to see the operation as, as it is. So go ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's actually pretty well said. Um, you know, one one little caveat around OHIP billing data is that it is susceptible to changes in billing practices. So you know if if there's a movement, for instance, from treating something by a primary care physician, and then now the new standard is that they need to go and be treated in hospital, it will look as though um, that illness is going down, but really the care was just transferred to a place that isn't reflected in this billing system. Um, You know, another thing is, you know, patterns in billing changed a lot over COVID. For instance, I think that the moment that people started, um, that COVID was declared and, you know, they started closing down a lot of non-essential businesses and um, access to public institutions and all that kind of stuff, uh, you, you saw a huge shift towards virtual billing where they would have virtual care visits versus in-person care visits. And so, again, that could that change could impact what we're seeing. So if we saw some changes that occurred in 2020 where, you know, things either went up or things went down, then we might be able to say, okay, you know, that's because people weren't actually able to access their doctors or, you know, they were accessing them in a different way. So when we're interpreting this data, it's very important to be considering what's happening in the bigger picture. And in terms of concluding, although this does tell us what was actually happening, in the field, it doesn't provide us with su- sufficient evidence to do a causal link. We can't actually say that that was causing, uh, you know, the vaccine was causing anything because um, we we can't actually make that association. We 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 aren't able to run, you know, we aren't able to 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 correspond a you know a vaccine database with this database and see if it, the the correlation is statistically significant, etc. But we are able to say oh, I do think that it's trending in the right way or the wrong way, or I do think that there's a temporal association and that it needs further investigation. Um, So I think that that's just, you know, in terms of caveats, in terms of looking at this data, I think it is very, very complete. It's, It's far more robust than any of the passive surveillance data that we've received in the past. Um, it is also something that isn't susceptible to investigator bias. So, for instance, there might be registries where people have been monitoring, you know, the outcomes of pregnant pregnant women, um, and you know, they can do a retrospect. You know, they can look at that data and retrospectively try and see what the outcomes are. Uh, but by manipulating baseline characteristics, they might make things look one way or another, or by selectively looking at it in one way or another, or if the 
investigator is passionate about, you know, vaccines being safe. And even though the data looks differently, they conclude that, you know, anything that was abnormal uh, was an anomaly, that the vaccines are safe. Uh, you, you, you basically avoid all of that. So you avoid the investigator bias. You avoid, um, you know, any tampering with adverse event reporting. This is just the real deal. This is just the billing, what actually happened on, on the ground, in the field, so to speak. So the other thing too that we have to think about is we're gonna be comparing uh, what happened between 2020 to 2022 with historical values. So, you know, what was happening from 2015 into 2019 and was there a departure from that trend? Uh, so we'll, we'll paint a trend line and then we'll look if there's a departure from that trend line or not. And one of the really important things to think about is you know, in order to be able to make any assessment about the last three years, we have to actually assume that there was no difference in trends leading up to this point. And for the most part, I think that that's a fairly safe assumption. But because COVID was so disruptive, we can't actually say that, you know, there could be factors that we're not even aware of that might also be explaining some of the trends that we're seeing. And so it's important to keep that in mind. And again, that's why we would want to investigate things more closely after viewing anomalies in this particular data. And that's what this analysis is for. It's for figuring out if there are anomalies that need to be investigated. So with that said, um, one of the things that was highly reported um, in women was menstrual irregularities. And I think that there were actually, you know, publications and news articles that were talking about uh, that particular thing. And so this this particular graph is basically might seem a little bit complicated, but I'll just walk you through it. But here uh, in this is the the axis. So 2015 to 2019 is our historicals. So this is basically what was happening in the background leading up to 2019. And what you'll notice is that there was a, a trend, a downward trend where fewer and fewer women or doctors were billing for seeing women with menstrual disorders. Now, we, we can't make any conclusions about why there is a downward trend or not, but we do know that it was downward trending. And so what we did was we built a line of best fit. So this is just a, a, an easy way of saying that if you were going to go into 2020, from 2020 to 2022, you'd basically say, well, in 2022, based on the trend, we should be about here. This would be where we would be in terms of um, the difference. And what the way that we calculated our analysis is we basically said in 2020, we know that there was a drop in visits where a lot of clinics were closed, but you don't see any change in the number of menstrual irregularities or billings, OHIP billings for menstruation disorders in that time period. So it's basically a 0% change. However, when you get out to 2021, you can see that there was a, a departure from what would be the normal. So what we did was we compared this to this, and that's a 33% increase in menstrual billings, OHIP billings for menstrual disorders in that time frame. So within this window of 2020 to 2022, when you're looking here, there was a peak right at 2021 when the vaccines were likely being rolled out in younger women. Um, we did another type of analysis over here where we looked at, uh, you know, 2020 and we compared it to 2019. And you can see that in 2020, there was a drop compared of 15% in the number of billings. So that would reflect the closures. In 2021, there was still some billing closures. And then here, in, if you look at 2022, it was minus 13. Uh, so all across the board, you've got fewer people coming in for menstrual uh, disorders uh, to the point where you've got a drop in 34% if you compare it just from 2019. So there's different ways of looking at it. If you're looking at the trend line, you can see that there's actually a big change. But if you actually just compare it to 2019 alone, you can see that the change isn't actually that dramatic because it's fairly close. So I know that this is a little bit complicated in terms of how we would look at it. And again, you know, depending on how you look at it, some would say that there's an issue and some would say that there isn't an issue. Uh, on the left-hand side, it would seem as though there's a departure from the downward trend. Uh, but if you just do a point in time analysis, that's not as obvious. 
Um, again, the other thing that we need to think about when we're looking at menstrual disorders is that, you know, it's very rare that a woman would experience a menstrual disorder to the point where it would be concerning enough for her to go to the doctor, especially the doctor whenever she's afraid of catching COVID-19. So it is possible that not all of our data has been captured uh, again in this only because not every woman who experienced a menstrual change would actually come in to see the doctor. Does that make so, sense, Mike? I just want to make sure that, you know, how we're reporting this makes sense. So the, the, the graph makes sense as far as looking at the trend, there seems to be, if you, or, or there is, if you follow the trend, a 43,000, 33% uptake in reports on menstrual disorders. And that certainly confirms a lot of anecdotal stories that we would have been hearing all throughout COVID. The chart or the, or the table is not making sense to me yet. Um, the table, we, we have the year and then, um, so can you walk us through the table again? Because it looks all negatives and in 20, it, it looks all negatives, but that could be simply with clinics closed. So I'm, I'm trying to understand what you're trying to communicate in that table. Um, so it, that one's more like a point in time analysis from 2019. So you can see here that in 2019, um, the number of events for menstrual irregularities was higher than any other time point here. So for instance, you know, this isn't going to be considering the historical trend. This oh, is just comparing it to Got 2019. It. So 2019 to 2020, there was definitely a drop. So here, a 15% right. drop. And then if you compare here to here, you can also see that this is slightly lower, only about 6% lower. And if you compare here okay. to here, then it again is, you know, a lower again. So overall, but between, but between 2020 and 21, there was definitely an increase. Yeah, absolutely. You're just, it's you're just saying it's, you're just saying that based upon the previous data, you're just literally going off of 2019 and comparing all the other years to 2019, which, but would if be, you compare yeah. 20 and 2021, it's, it's definitely an increase. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I see that. So again, and it's just different ways of reporting it. You know, people who would want to show that there is an, uh, you know, something that's happening here might be more inclined to hear, uh, but somebody who yeah. wanted to obfuscate uh, any change would probably do this type of analysis. Right. So I've provided both of them just to basically for balance. Um, but I think that if you actually look at the greater picture where you're, you are seeing this decline and then this increase, that I do think that that does explain the anecdotal evidence of people saying, you know, almost everybody I talked to, every woman I talked to said that something had changed in her period. You so know, not just all to... of them were so con concerning that they would go to a doctor about it, but it definitely does confirm, you know, the actual everyday reports. And just on that, like what this doesn't, what this doesn't take into account, if if I'm understanding it correctly, is also just how many clinics were open to be reported, right? Like, so even yeah. you, you, this is just exactly what was reported, but it's not looking at, okay, in 2019, X amount of clinics were open and in 2020 and in 2021 and in 2022, uh, X you know, certain clinics were closed or, or certain uh, lockdowns were in place. Like it doesn't take into effect any factor other than just looking at what was reported. Yeah. I would say that having looked at a lot of this OHIP billing data, consistent right across the board is a drop in 2020 um, because of all of the closures. And I think also because people were so afraid of COVID that nobody wanted to go to the doctor, even if they had an issue. Right. They were, they were just terrified. So, you know, right across the board, no matter what data set or what OHIP code we're looking at, it does look like there's a drop in 2020, which is represented here. Um, and uh, then, of course, this here, this dot here would be completely out of 
out of alignment with the historical trend. Even if you incorporated 2020, this is right up there. Uh, and again, it hasn't come down completely to reach the historical line right here. And the the 33% that we're looking at is the, the highest point after 2020. You know, it's the highest point between 2021 and 2022, which is where, you know, we see the biggest the biggest shift is right when everybody was getting their second to third dose. Right. So um, postmenopausal bleeding. So this is women who would normally be in menopause who all of a sudden start menstruating again. So again, the line of best fit here is a little bit more difficult to map because there's so much irregularity here. I can't comment on why it's so irregular, but this is our 2019 point here. So you can see relative to 2019 that that's a, a, a good drop as the clinics are closed. And then if you think relative to 2019, uh, it it comes back up a little bit. So this could potentially be something and then it stays up in 2022. So it's just a slight increase relative to 2019. Um, and it and one might argue or one could argue that this just reflects the clinic closures and this the fear around COVID and that this is just everything getting back to no normal and you know us in overcoming the fear of going to see your doctor. Or you could look at it and say, well, we were trending downward in 2019. And if we would have kept that trend, we would have been all the way down here, you know. And so the difference between this point and this point is 28,000 people or an increase in 29%. So just and while again, you're on that, on that, I know you started back in 2015 within the medical world, like are there are there drugs and treatments that would have been the medical world is expecting a decrease in these hormonal changes or you know post uh, postmenopausal bleeding? Like, um, I think what I'm saying is, is as someone who doesn't look at this regularly, you wouldn't be expecting a constant downward. You would be, you'd be expecting the blue line, not the gray line, but based upon 2015, the gray line then seems appropriate. Do you know what I mean? You would, you would think that every year there's a certain, you know, there's an average amount of deaths. There's an average amount of postmenopausal bleeding. There's an average amount it, in both of these slides. It's saying, well, there, there's actually the, the, both of these things were on a downward trend. And so is that because of like medical treatment is is dealing with is with some of these conditions and having some success so the expectation is actually no there's not an annual average we do expect that to decline yeah i think you're right so you know what could explain a downward trend is a successful treatment being rolled out wide you know widespread like um it could be you know an initiative uh, you know, maybe this would be an upward trend would be an initiative to better detect a, an illness of concern, right? A downward trend could represent uh, a really great new breakthrough therapy that, you know, is being used uh, across the board now that has widespread adoption. It could be that, uh, you know, women used to be treated in the community and now they're being referred to you know, in hospital clinics where you have salaried OB-GYNs, right? It could be a, just a change in, in from people who used to be billed uh, to now people who, who uh, don't bill OHIP. Right. It also could be a shift from one OHIP billing code to another. Now we looked for all the OHIP billing codes that would be similar to this. And sometimes we combine the billing codes if we feel like they were, you know, similar uh, or representing the same illness. And so we tried to control a little bit for that. But uh, I guess that's going back to what I said previously, which is I can't really comment on the why we have the downward trend, you know, because there could be any number of examples. But I, I do, we can note that uh, there was the expected drop in 2020 relative to 2019 um, and a surprising increase and in reversal coming out of that in 2021 that has maintained. And now if we think about it, we have to think about it too, in the sense of um, you need exposure to the vaccine for it to be represented in this, this particular graph. And so 
you know, we've got younger women who at the end of 2021, we know 80% of, of probably teenagers, people over 16 years of age would probably have had at least one shot. Uh, potentially people who are a little bit older might have had, or sorry, have had two shots by the time at the end of 2021, and maybe some people starting to get a third shot. And then I think for young people, it pretty much dropped off. So the fact that, you know, you've got this exposure in 2021, early 2022, potentially, and that it's staying constant here is also a little bit interesting and probably warrants further investigation. And again, you know, none of this means anything like causal. We can't prove that this is indeed the case, but it does look like a very mysterious reversal and, and extension uh, that wouldn't necessarily be explained just by all the clinics opening up again. Right. So just as we're looking at that, just to look at the chart and, and that explanation was very helpful. So let's just say it was a, a combination of uh, a good treatment and a combination of uh, different billing codes and a different procedural, um, you know, inpatient care rather than outpatient care. What you've shown is in 2020, the expected, the expected trajectory is 83,000 and it was a little bit under that and you go, okay, closures. So that, that mm -hmm. makes sense, but it's, but it's near, it's, it's near our ex, our, our expectation in the same way in the, in the previous slide, it, it was right on the downward trend. So for whatever reason, the expectation that it's a downward trend is, is right on. Um, and then now we have the, the, the significant reversal. So th that's great. Uh, let's go on to the next slide. That's, or, or however you want to communicate. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, I think, here. I think that we're, I think it's good to talk through these things because, uh, you know, we, we just have to soberly consider what all the different factors could be. Right. Um, however, this is a fairly dramatic reversal, right? That, yeah. You know, if this is the closure, you know, then, a re, you know, then maybe the reverse of a closure would be up here, uh, but we're all the way up here and it, and it's steady up here. I don't have 2023 because we don't have that data yet, but I, I'm going to be curious to see what's happening in 2023. And again, you know, menstrual irregularities with a younger woman, I mean, all sorts of things can influence how your period goes and in the frequency and everything. But for a postmenopausal woman to begin to bleed again is concerning. Um, you know, coming from the cancer world, you know, that immediately uh, signals the, that's the first sign of uterine cancer. Uh, and so then, you know, that woman probably would be shunted off to a differential diagnosis to try and figure out what's happening, right? Um, so this isn't just a, oh, that's interesting kind of thing that, it, you know, this is a, oh, wow, this is potentially concerning and what is going on? Because this is a dramatic reversal. Um, just yeah. on that note, um, I remember, you know, of course, I, I work in the cancer field and so... Um, you know, cancer has an upward trajectory, right? And it doesn't matter what cancer you're looking at, everything is going up over time. Even though we're getting all these designer new treatments that are supposedly bringing it down, it always seems like the incidence is going up. But there was one time whenever I remember uh, the incidence of cancer, you know, dropping by 14% and, you know, everybody at the conference just about fell off their chair when there was a drop of 14% or any dramatic change like that. Um, in, a, in a similar population-based database like this. And, and that was whenever they had made the connection between hormone replacement therapy and, um, and, can and breast cancer. And, you know, there was the, a study that was published and then all the women went off of uh, their hormone replacement therapy. And uh, then, you know, if you look at that point in time when there was this big departure from hormone replacement therapy, all of a sudden the incidence of breast cancer dropped by like 14 to 15 percent. And it's only ever only time I've ever seen a, a change of 14 percent. And I thought that was shocking. So to see these reversals that, you know, potentially are, you know, 30 percent change in direction <clears throat> is remarkable. And um, I think, you know, by any uh, honest person would at least at the very least say, you know, this warrants investigation. Okay. So infertility. So that is, uh, 
you know, I, I wish I actually had the definition of it, but basically it is a woman who's trying to get pregnant, who is having difficulty getting pregnant and then comes to the doctor and asks uh, to be seen to, for, to begin the process of inquiry around why she can't get pregnant. So again, if we look here, there's a downward trend up to 2019, and this is our line of best fit here. Um, and so with the closures for COVID, you can see that, um, you know, there was a little bit of a, a change from 2019 to 2020. There was a, quite a bit of a jump here. Um, but in 2021 here, so there's a, there's the decrease in 2020, but again, this very large out of proportion increase to 2021 that again has this similar tail to it where it's remaining higher and definitely different than the trend line. Um, you know, any one change relative to 2021. 20, 2019 isn't very dramatic. Maybe one could argue that, you know, from 2019 up here, that these are, are dramatic. But overall, even if you add all of these up, um, you've basically got, you know, both a departure from the trend, but also a departure from the value for 2019. So again, I would probably say that this is concerning and definitely worth investigation because now no matter how you look at it whether it's comparing it to the linear fit or just a point in time change from 2019 we are seemingly getting this a similar view and again if we're looking at um, a passive surveillance system like the one that we have in Canada that's supposed to be detecting problems with vaccines it would be very unusual for somebody to say oh, I got my vaccine and now I'm infertile. You know, they, those two things don't actually add up in the mind of somebody. You know, they'd say, oh, I've got my vaccine. I must, you know, I've got a headache or my arm hurts. You know, those would be ones where it's more intuitively obvious. Uh, I don't think anybody would be really looking for infertility as a byproduct for the vaccine. Um, so again, that's why we're thankful for OHIP billing data, which basically shows a fairly dramatic departure in, you know, the historical billing practices uh, with the rollout again of the vaccine. And here <clears throat> you can see this is 2021. So, you know, we know that at, by the end of 2021, 80% of people had two doses. So it, you know, we, this data is not granular enough for us to see a trend over time between 2020 and 2021 or 2021 to the end of 2022. We just have like annual data. Um, but again, we know that by 2021, the end of that, which would be represented in this particular dot, we have 80% of women who are of reproductive age receiving these shots. So that's a lot of exposure, right? in Ontario, and then you see a subsequent jump in in the billings for infertility for females, for women. Any questions? Yeah, just on, just um, the 32,000 versus the 31.7 thousand. The 31.7 thousand would have been following the trajectory exactly, and the prediction was just a little bit it was 300, it was 300, um, 300 reports off of that or, or, or 300 incidents yeah. off of that. So, so still a very confident trajectory, um, in, 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 in way of following things from 2015. Um, so no, I, I think that just, I really am appreciating how like this, this, this could look as drastic as the as the one be before, but this was only up seventeen percent, um, five thousand point three instances. Of course, concerning and and a reverse trend. But I'm really appreciative of how easily I can distill accurate information up there. So up seventeen percent, five thousand point five point three thousand uh, reports or uh, mm -hmm. bills. So. And again, you know, these are women who, you know, in 2021, were just opening up everything and people are just gaining their confidence around going to see a doctor. And so these women are so concerned about their fertility, their infertility, right, that they are 
risking to go see a doctor. They might very well feel very confident now that they have their vaccine, knowing that it's safe and effective. Um, and, and so that gives them the confidence to go and see their doctor. But again, definitely proportionally, dramatically higher than the drop that we saw whenever we were looking at, um, you know, the, the lowest point in 2020 versus the trend line. So this, this is more than just the clinics opening again, as what I, as I guess what I'm trying to point out here. Right. Right. Well, and, the, so, and like you said, you have no idea whether we, we have an idea whether people were running to their clinics, like interpreting the data, you, you would have to ignore what, how everybody felt in order to say, oh, there, this was just because people were now getting back to the, like people were still hesitant to do anything. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so, so these were people who were very serious about, about their concern. So, okay. That's fine. So we're going to shift and look at miscarriage data. So, you know, that's fetal loss. Um, and in order to be able to interpret fetal loss appropriately, you need to be able to think about it in the context of the number of live births that were happening at any given time. And so this is just a chart that we've pulled from, you know, stats, can of Ontario. <laughs> That's, anyways, it's looking at Ontario births and you can see uh, that in 2000 they were here and of course we've got population increases so you know if the, if the number of live births increases over time uh, it should be proportionate to the population increase which it doesn't isn't necessarily but what we really want to look at is from 2015 which is here uh, through to 2019 which is about here and you can see that that's pretty steady. So um, when we're going to be looking at, you know, whether there were miscarriages, we're, you know, needing to think about it in this context. And even in 2019 to 2020, it seems pretty, pretty consistent. And the only drop that we have, which is even just a minimal drop, although our, our um, chart here, the legend is, you know, fairly high. Like if this could be represent, you know, 10 to 10 to 15 thousand births right here uh, we do get a drop here and that's from 2020 to 2021 uh, and again hard to account for what that could be um, and then in 2021 to 2022 uh, we have a, a return to normal levels so slight drop here in live births hard to explain what that might be and then 21 2022 we're we're back to normal so let's take a look at missed incomplete or complete abortion. So this is basically, you know, it's, it's a catch-all code for anything that's related to uh, a miscarriage of, of some degree. Um, and, you know, it is a combination of two different billing codes just so that we didn't miss anything. And again, this wouldn't include if somebody presented at the eMERGE department and basically was concerned. This is basically somebody presenting to their OB-GYN or their midwife, or actually it wouldn't even be their midwife, it would just be the OB-GYN um, related to uh, this thing. Or actually, I don't even know about the midwife. I'm just brought that up right now. I should actually go and check to see if they bill for OHIP. I, I'm imagining yes, but I can't say for sure. A good question for me to go and, and look up. But anyway, here is our historicals 2015 to 2019 again you know some fluctuation we're not sure what that is this is our 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 linear fit here this is our best line of best fit and so if we're looking at 2019 to 2020 we actually see that there is an increase in miscarriages already uh you know just comparing to our line of best fit, you can see that it's also fairly consistent. And so that's a 6% increase. And if you go up to the, the peak here, which would be 31.7, you can see that that's a 10% increase in, in miscarriages. Uh, and that that then comes down in 2022. And so um, we know that there was a drop in live births from 2020 to 2021. And we also see that there was an increase in miscarriages uh, within in Ontario within that same time period. 
So it is very possible that births that started out as intact basically uh, were lost in that time frame. It would be important to think about all the factors that were at play. I don't think that you're going to be missing appointments because of closures when you're pregnant. I think that that wouldn't explain any departures. And so you don't even see the, the downward trend in 2020. Um, it could be that, you know, this, uh, this increase prior to um, the rollout of the vaccine could be people being concerned about uh, the COVID crisis and anxiety being a factor in losing their children. It also has been reported that being pregnant is a risk factor for COVID-19 or so SARS-CoV-2 infection. And it might very be well, very well be that uh, some women were being exposed and maybe losing their babies based on um, exposure to, to SARS-CoV-2 or a severe infection in 2020. It's hard to say, um, but we definitely know that the highest point was in 2021 when we have that 80% exposure to the vaccine. And again, even if SARS-CoV-2 was uh, a factor and uh, women were at greater risk, then what we're having here is additive factors. We have the 2020 exposure plus the exposure via uh, the vaccine, and that could potentially be what's what we're seeing here. And, you know, the, the tail, the drop off here, um, again, hard to explain what that might be. But again, if women aren't um, getting the vaccine while they're pregnant, uh, like has been encouraged, then potentially you won't have that uh, change in coagulation that might be one of the mechanisms uh, by which uh, a fetal loss could happen. So again, you need to have suspension of uh, blood flow, you know, of coagulation. So the blood flows from the mother to the fetus through the placenta. And so anything that would interfere with that through microclotting, for instance, uh, related to the vaccine, which has been established, could potentially be, you know, a mechanism of action for fetal loss related to immediate vaccine exposure when the baby is in the womb. Um, and again, if you just look at values relative to 2019, you know, on all counts, you know, we've got increases right across the board. So, you know, again, one would probably argue that something's happening, especially when you think about it in relation to the official reporting of live births in Ontario. So I just have a question about the title of this slide, missed incomplete or complete abortion. Obviously we're not talking about abortion in the sense of uh, this is tracking individuals who have gone in to have their baby killed. We're, we're talking about the two lines within HOHIP that a, a woman would be coming in and there was a, a miscarriage I, I just don't understand where incomplete and complete abortion would fit into the description of a miscarriage. And yeah, you know, it's, it's funny. I think I can't even, I don't even know when that changed. Right. But it was traditionally always called miscarriage and, and I'm a hundred percent sure in order to confuse the general population, they changed miscarriage to abortion and incomplete mystic or complete abortion. Cause in our minds, we're like, okay, she's heading to the clinic and she didn't make it right. That must be an incomplete one or a missed or something like that. Um, but that's not at all the case. It's, it's actually referring to miscarriages in this. And that's just the way that it's coded. Okay. Perfect. So we left the that's codes that we pulled. Yep. Yeah, we left the codes that we pulled uh, because we know what that means. And of course, that reflects miscarriages. These are not uh, intended uh, abortions. I think that there's another word for that. It's abortion, but it's um, planned or something. Okay. <laughs> yeah, just for, planned, for maximal confusion. Yeah, like, it's probably coded as like a planned gentle massage or something like that now. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. look, we are at the hour point again, Deanna. And oh so we're going to have to continue this conversation. And you are you are presenting some really fantastic information. And I'm not gonna let you present male fertility, uh infertility. Oh no, this is the I'm last gonna... one. Come on. The okay, sorry, is this hip slides? Are, is this the last one of the fertility slide infertility slides, or are we like how many slides are we into the presentation? I'm just, uh, hold on a second. Yep, that's it. 
Look at that. We were two slides off. I think we Okay. Think well, we then, you know what, everybody? You can go for five more minutes. I'm not going to interrupt a lot. Let's go ahead and get this last slide out. Deanna, this is a world record. You've this is unbelievable. I'm I'm almost speechless. I was really hoping I could land it on an hour. I was so prepared. You're pre <laughs> I was you like, have, I got to land have, it on an hour. You have 20, you have 38 seconds. Go. Oh my gosh. Okay. Um, OHIP billing. So there's, there's multiple codes for OHIP billing, but this one is related to, um, you know, oligospermia and azoospermia. Basically it's low sperm or no sperm counts. Uh, so basically this is the, uh, the health of the male sperm. And again, you know, when we're thinking about fertility in women, it could very well be, you know, if you're getting booked in for, hey, I, I need to know what's going on. I can't get pregnant. It, you know, it could, it's a, it could be partly something to do with your partner. Um, and so we actually look at historical data for male fertility related to sperm counts. You can see from 2015 to 2019 that you've got an, a, a line of best fit that's trending upwards. Um, you know, if we do our, our point uh, in time comparisons for 2019, which is that handy little chart over there, we can see the normal dip, you know, that's, you know, whether you're looking at 2019 or the line of best fit, we have a drop in 2020. The guys aren't wanting to go and chat with a doctor about low sperm counts at this stage, right? They've got other things on their mind. Um, and if you, look at 2021, all of a sudden, there's a, a, a very large, you know, a, a big shift towards uh, heading out. And again, if you look at 2022, it remains high. So again, we've got that, you know, expected closure. And then after things open up, and the vaccine has been rolled out, we've got this, you know, leap, which, you know, again, is disproportionate to what we would expect based on the trend line. Uh, and so again, that's 11% increase, but you got to think about it. This is guys going to the doctor and saying there's something wrong with me. So <laughs> I'm expecting underreporting in that one. Um, so this is my last slide, Mike, and I'm not that far off and I'm going to own it. Um, but what this data says to us is that there's a call where there's a need for more research in this area that we cannot accept the very uh, insensitive uh, passive surveillance system that the government has prepared for us and consider that to be appropriate or sufficient safety monitoring for us. Although they talk about it being the state of our state of the art, uh, you know, passive surveillance system, uh, a state of the art jalopy or Vespa it, is not a it, high sp performance speed car, right? Like it's not, this, is, this isn't working for us. It's not detecting what we need to detect. It's not. It's well the art of the state perspective. It's the art of the state surveillance system, not the state That's of right. the art. The That's right. The, the art, the art Man, of the state to make you unaware. Um, I've and a, I'm I, tweeting that. <laughs> so I think the other thing too is that uh, one thing that's very clear to me based on this data is that we need to pause on vaccination until the safety issues are fully investigated. Uh, you know, and I think I think that the precautionary principle is one where um, you you basically say, okay, there could be a risk of harm here, right? And what we need to do is make sure that there is no harm before we proceed any further. And that is what we should expect from our health officials. Um, and that the moment that you see concerning data like this, then you pause it, you investigate, you do the appropriate testing if you haven't done the testing. And then if the testing says all clear, we're good to go, we've done some, rigorous perspective, well-controlled studies, you know, we've controlled for investigator bias uh, and we're all clear, then we move forward. But until that actually occurs, considering that they did not do the testing out of the gate, that I think that this is sufficient, sufficiently concerning to warrant at the very least a pause uh, and further research. And we're really hoping that, you know, when we get this information out there, uh, thanks to people like you, Mike uh, and other platforms, we're going to be collaborating with the Daily Cloud and Naomi Wolf in the States, um, maybe the Children's Great. Health Defense that, uh, you know, will bring this to the awareness of people and maybe we can entice a couple researchers to to look at this in a little bit more, a little bit close, more closely. That's all I got. So thanks right. for hanging in with me after how many episodes, right?
No, this is fantastic. And Deanna, whenever you guys have some research that you want to share, our listeners are are always um, always up for trying to understand, you know, again, this just comes back to basic informed consent. We've talked about it many times. This comes back to just how bullied people were. This comes back to conversations we would have this week with people to say, Hey, do you have any regret about what you've done? No, 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 no. And you go, well, have you done any research on it? Um, uh, it's very, very important. Um, this goes back to the whole anecdotal situation. So many people were saying my, my daughter, my niece, my, my wife, like they're reporting having all of this, these bleeding issues. And then, um, you know, I'm, uh, I, I don't know what to do about it. And so what, what this thing, what this does, you know, it, it goes back to, you know, I'm listening to your report. And even if I can't convince the government to pause, which good for you, you guys are, um, I certainly am again, more equipped to make good decisions for the future. And again, if I see the government, the art of the state, uh, which is basically, a, you know, a, a, maybe an idiom now for propaganda. Uh, if I see that in, in, a, in a similar product where I, where I don't get to ask questions and I, I, I don't get to investigate at all, um, this this type of research helps me go okay i i know the course that I, that i should take so everybody look uh we're going uh, Deanna doesn't have any like pressing uh research projects that she's told me of already so it might be a little while before you see Deanna i don't think it'll be very long but thank you so much for all of your research Deanna and we're going to wrap this show up in historically early time and i'm going to just finish by reminding um, all of you that the Ezra Institute is running um, uh, our World Youth Academy and our Cultural Leadership Academy. And we have a, a family uh, camp going on uh, in the United States this year. So we have events going on in Canada and the United States. And the Ezra Institute uh, trains young adults with a Christian worldview and trains families with a Christian worldview. So we want you to go to EzraInstitute.com and learn about our training programs. Uh, it, it literally is this type of um, level of expertise when you get into some of the training on doing exactly what Deanna is doing. We, want, we need Christian medical researchers to actually want to tell the truth and not just keep their job. We, we the world needs Christians to do godly and righteous things while the vast majority of the world is going to deny God's created order. And so exactly what Deanna is doing and exactly uh, the type of training that the Ezra Institute offers is trying to equip the next generation of Christians to be able to stand in a time uh, when there's just so many lies out there. So Deanna, thank you for your time. Everybody, thank you for listening. Share this, like this, give us a five-star rating. Uh, make sure you download the FLF app and, and look at any of the other podcasts that are there. Thank you for listening. Godspeed. <laughs>